Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On the Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by the man, the myth, the one, the only, Darius Dale. Darius, welcome back to the show. Mike, it's such a pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a really kind introduction. I don't know if I'm a myth or a legend, but I am certainly a man. <laughs> yeah. How many people have introed you as the man, the myth before? <laughs> I was pretty good at football, so probably quite a few <laughs> like <laughs> back in high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, man. We've uh, we've got a lot to cover, so I just want to jump right into it. So we had the FOMC uh, this week. I would love to just get your thoughts on uh, sort of the your, the tea leaf uh, divining that we always do whenever Jay Powell talks and takes the microphone, um, and then we can get into your expectations around around rates. He's starting to look tired, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> this is a guy who's been having internal struggles for like a well better part of like a year and a half now. So it's like it's starting to wear on him, and I'm, I'm starting to feel for the guy. But I'm shocked anyone wants to do this job. I'm not yeah. going to lie. I I can't even imagine the stress of doing that. But good for him. God bless yeah. him. God bless him. God bless him. He's doing the best he can as, uh, as all, all the Federal Reserve policymakers, but yeah, that doesn't mean that they're going to achieve the best outcome. So, um, I put together some charts. Let's just hop right into the charts. I think it's you know, probably it. easier to explain, uh, that way. So we'll, let's just get right into the FOMC yesterday. So, uh, obviously the big takeaway was the Fed hiking its 2024 and 2025 median dot, uh, both by 50 basis points. So now the Fed is effectively calling for five and a quarter, uh, for, uh, 2024 in terms of the year end Fed funds rate. And they're also calling for, um, you know, three or sorry, 4% uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the year in 2025. They left their longer run projection unchanged. So that tells me that this is a Federal Reserve that still sees the world returning back to the state uh, that it was in prior to, uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, I, I happen to believe, and, and alongside with uh, Jim Bianco, who's a, a favorite, a friend of the show as well, uh, that we are not going back to that state uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about uh, in a second. Um, the next chart just shows uh, the Fed now only sees two cuts uh, in 2024 in terms of going from the current term or the the, the, the terminal rate uh, to the year end rate of 2024, and then they see seven cuts in total by the year in 2025. Now that doesn't necessarily matter um, as it relates to market participants because the Fed is going to remain data dependent as are the markets um, throughout this process, but that will have implications for the bond market, which we'll get to in a few slides. Um, before we get there, let's just hop right into their summary of economic projections. Yeah. So the Fed raised its median real GDP estimate uh, by more than double uh, for 2023. Uh, that number went to 2.1 percent uh, from uh, I want to say about 1.1, uh, <laughs> right around 1 percent uh, prior. Uh, we increased it 40 basis points to 2.5 percent uh, in 2024 in terms of the year end estimate there. And then they still see sort of the trend rate of growth, long term trend in terms of productivity plus uh, working age population, uh, right around 1.8 percent, which is where we've been really for the past 10 plus uh, years. Uh, the Fed lowered uh, its median unemployment rate estimate by 30 basis points uh, to 3.8%, um, catching down in the unemployment rate terms, catching up in GDP terms to the resilient U.S. economy thing that we've been talking about, you know, all year, really since back to uh, last, 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 last summer, actually. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Fed's, uh, they lowered the unemployment rate forecast for next year to 4.1%, which is consistent with uh, where effectively where they see it um, settling out at, uh, which is interesting, right? Because, <laughs> you know, the Fed is effectively saying we're going to get more growth less labor market deterioration, but somehow we still have this immaculate soft landing path in inflation. And so they took down their core PCE forecast for 2023 
uh, to 3.7%. Uh, they have that decelerated to 2.7% uh, by year end 2024. And then now they kind of have it settling out at around 2.3% by 25 and then eventually getting back to 2% by 2026. I don't know where, <laughs> where they're getting these 25 and 26 estimates from. Like I build models for a living. We have no real foundational basis to, to forecast that uh, core PC out that far. Aside from just sort of, you know, extending the trend, which, which we can argue the trend has very much changed in the pandemic. So, uh, that's neither here nor there. This is by, by the way, most of these sort of, um, wonky, um, academics use these autoregressive tools to forecast. We have autoregressive tools that we use to forecast as well. But the reality is if the trend, if the underlying trend changes, the autoregressive tool is going to be wrong. And I think the Fed's going to be wrong on this expectation here, uh, without a recession. And, uh, you know, one thing I was, um, in, in terms of the recession view, you know, if you think about this sort of concept of the Fed thinks inflation is going to be well behaved, the Fed mm-hmm. thinks, you know, uh, growth is going to be better than expected, the labor market is going to be better than expected, but ultimately they're going to have to keep interest rates higher for longer despite that, or really higher for longer as a function of that. You know, you put all that stuff together, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? If you, you know, like we're going to get better than expected outcomes on inflation, better than expected outcomes on growth, better than expected outcomes on employment, and then better than expected outcomes on in terms of the level of the policy rate. Now, the, none of that really jives if you think about it just from a, you know, fund of, you know, macroeconomics 101 sense. Um, but it, the only, you know, the only way you can sort of get to that outcome is one of two things happens. Uh, and, and job, and the first thing uh, that happens is job openings, which is the red line in this bottom panel here. They continue to bear the full brunt of labor market rebalancing. So we all know the labor market's out of balance, right? If you look at the total uh, labor demand relative to labor supply, uh, that's at 170 million relative to 168 million. And so the imbalance there is, is plus, you know, right around plus 2.5 million workers uh, in terms of in favor of the uh, labor market demand. So we still have this, you know, imbalance there that is, you know, keeping private sector wage growth elevated relative to its longer term trend. Now, if the red line here, again, jolts total job openings continues to go down and we just have a modest acceleration in total employment, which is the blue line there, uh, you can actually get to a, a, a you know dissipation of that imbalance back to and potentially through zero that will allow the blue line here, again, private sector employment cost index to get back to a more normalized level. That's what's been happening, by the way. So if it continues to happen, then, you know, the, you know, the sort of Goldilocks, Pollyannish expectations that we're getting out of the Federal Reserve's uh, summary of economic projections uh, can happen. Now, I don't think that's the modal outcome, and you and I will talk about that in a second, but the final slide I'll show in this discussion is or two. So again, you only get to this Goldilocks Pollyannish outcome if we continue to see Joe's job openings bear the full brunt of labor market rebalancing, or the U.S. Ex- economy experience is a productivity boom. Uh, and the way I say, and the reason we say that is, uh, you know, if you go back and you sort of look at what causes big spikes in inflation, it's typically, you know, the sort of concept of a wage price spiral. It's sort of loose. It's, it's, you know, there's not a, there's some research, there's re- academic research out there, but it's very inconclusive. But we can know just by, you know, kind of eyeball on the chart, which is whenever we've had these big spikes in inflation, um, that's the red lines and the black line in these charts. It's typically as a function, or at least it's correlated or, you know, co-integrated with, you know, the, um, the, the big spikes in the spread between wage growth and productivity growth. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If, the, if, mm-hmm. you're, if your labor is generally the, high, the, the largest um, uh, cost for most businesses, it's somewhere between 50 to 60 to 65% for most businesses. And so if wage growth is growing really quickly and you have that outpacing productivity growth, i.e. the goods and services that the workers are creating, then where you're ultimately le- you're leaving the economy with the supply and demand imbalance. You got a lot more demand in the economy, a lot less supply, and ultimately prices have to rise um, in terms of um, in terms of having to, um, to offset that, not just in terms of the actual you know quantity of goods and services being demanded and, and supplied, but also in terms of they, you know to offset that from a margin perspective, 
perspective for the uh, for the corporate. So you know, there's there's a path to a soft landing, and then there's a path to a hard landing, and the path to a soft landing requires jolts continue to bear the full blunt of the, um, the labor market rebalancing process, and we get this productivity boom that again it's impossible to forecast. You know, and I'll give you one final stat on this whole discussion: productivity has averaged somewhere between one and a half, somewhere around one and a half percent over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, and 40 years. So we are one and a half percent productivity economy. If you know, you basically need to get to three plus percent productivity if we keep wages at this level in order to get inflation back down uh, to 2% sustainably. And so I, again, that could happen, but there's no real foundational basis to say that it's going to happen. Yeah. All right. That was a lot of great information, Darius. I want to sort of break um, that conversation to a couple of different parts and sort of move through them sequentially. And <laughs> one is just uh, just the Federal Reserve and what's going on with interest rates. So there's what we actually got from the FOMC, and I want to poke it a little bit and get your expectation of where you think rates are actually going. Yep. Sort of tied into that is the discussion around inflation and what is the actual rate that you think we're going to get and how much the Fed has control over that. And then finally, how that translates into sort of the real economy. Labor market maybe is the link in between. Uh, labor market wage growth is sort of linked between inflation and uh, the real economy. So starting mm -hmm. with this FOMC, right, we obviously got, uh, we're staying pat, um, but the market generally expects that there's going to be one more hike this year in November. And then probably we start cutting halfway through next year. I would love to get a sense of how accurate you think that is. And then what I want to ask you about is sort of the long end of the yield curve here, which has been spiking up. So Maybe just start with like how how we like what do you think we're going to get in terms of rates and then we can talk about the long end of the curve. Yeah, great question, great question. So yeah, well, I like that you broke it up across the curve because I do believe um, there are some some interesting curve dynamics to, to get yeah. through before we get to those rate cuts. Uh, we do believe that's a fairly accurate assessment where we would take um, offense to the current pricing if you look at Fed funds futures of that expectation of starting to cut mid year. That expectation is based on a soft landing pricing in terms of you know inflation really is doing exactly what the Fed wants it to do. The Fed's going to be able to be allowed to take some steam off of the, um, off of the, um, the tightening program in terms of, you know, not allowing real interest rates to get too tight, uh, as we go move forward in time and as inflation falls down. So that's what's priced into the curve right now. So we agree with that directionally, but we also believe what's going to happen is, is that the, the, what the current pricing is, is misguided in the sense that we're going to see a lot more rate cuts than what's currently priced in, in our view. Um, cause we do believe that a recession is the modal outcome. Right. You know, I don't think there's been a human being on earth that has been more accurate about the resiliency of the U.S. economy than I have. You know, we have at 42 macro for the past 15 months. And we still believe that a recession is the modal outcome for a variety of reasons. Um, number one reason is the, the most, the most accurate forecaster of the, the recession, the business cycle continues to be deeply inverted, which is the 10 year, three month uh, treasury yield curve. It's eight for eight for the last recession. And since its inception, it's, you know, eight for nine, which is as good as a, forecast for the uh, for, for, for the business cycle as we out, have out there. And based on our analysis of the business cycle, you know, we did a big back test study um, last uh, last fall, in fact, in November of last year. And the conclusion of that study uh, was that the recession had the highest probability of commencing in this sort of 13 to 18 month forward interval from the date of inversion. You know, so you can sort of slice and dice, um, you know, GDP, employment, you know, um, you know, the things of that nature, you know, kind of traditional economic statistics that the NBER would use to, um, to, to, to sort of take data business cycle. And historically, what we saw is that the interval that, again, the interval that has the highest probability of, of, of seeing a real GDP contraction and a rise in the unemployment rate is the 13 to 18 month forward interval that corresponds to November 2023 through April 2024. So until we get to March, May 1st of 2024, and there's no recession, we're still going to have a recession as our modal outcome. And again, we have other models that suggest that a, a, that a recession is likely 
you know, a little bit of spillover beyond April 2024, a little bit of spillover be, before November 2023, but that is our modal outcome expectation. And so in that context, if we do start a recession process sometime in that interval, I happen to think it's going to be in the latter half of that interval rather than, rather than sooner. If we do start a recession process, the Fed will have to do an about-face pivot, panic rate cuts, panic QE. So we're expecting all those things to occur in 2024, and that's not what's currently priced uh, into the market. Uh, if you look at what's sort of currently priced into the market um, in terms of um, in terms of money markets, money markets are now basically pricing in only 150 basis points of rate cuts total. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of of you know historically speaking, we typically seen the Fed cut about 375 basis points in a recession, and historically in recessions where the Fed has caused the recession with monetary tightening. The Fed tends to cut on a median basis 475 basis points. And again, this is against the money markets that, you know, between the, the max value, the terminal Fed funds rate and the overnight index swap curve relative to the floor value of the overnight index swap curve. We only have a minus 150 basis points. So we got a lot more easing to price in when we get to that recession process. However, not so fast, my friends, as the great Lee Corso would say, <laughs> not so fast. We still think there's a considerable amount of fixed income volatility ahead of us before we get to that, you know, that, that, that Pollyanna scenario for, mm. for a bond bull. And the reason we say that, and again, we can unpack any of this in greater detail, but I'll give you the kind of the headline, the key takeaway. We still think the U.S. economy is going to prove to be resilient over the near term, you know, over the next, let's call it three to six months before we head into that recession process. We still think uh, one thing we're starting to see in some of the data that we track is this sort of transition from immaculate disinflation here in the U.S. economy in terms of the dominating the inflation narrative to sticky inflation. We're starting to see elements of sticky inflation. And what we mean by sticky inflation is that core PCE measures of underlying inflation, like trim mean, trim, you know, median uh, CPI and PCE deflator. Those measures are starting to stick and stabilize at levels that are inconsistent with the Fed's 2% mandate. And so that's, you know, I think by, in, by more than likely by year end, everything I just said will be consensus about inflation. Right now, we're still debating immaculate disinflation. And there's starting to, you're starting to hear a little bit of a sticky inflation twinge out there because of the energy move. But it's actually more, it's more broad based in energy. And I think, again, we'll, we'll all be kind of dealing with that as investors in a few months. And then lastly, the BOJ. We think the BOJ is going to continue to in inject um, bond market volatility across sovereign debt curves globally. Because if you think about where the BOJ is in its tightening cycle, which is very early and also very anomalous to where the rest of the world is in the context of a Japan, a Japanese economy that has grown, it's, it's, it's currently exhibiting above trend real GDP growth. It's composite PMI reading is an above trend pace, a trip above trend level as well. We have above trend headline CPI and above trend core CPI in Japan. It's the only major economy in the world with those conditions. So they have the most amount of pressure to type monetary policy at the current juncture than any other central bank in the world. Yet they are very early in their tightening process. So we think Bank of Japan is set up to surprise investors with tightening uh, throughout this fall. And as a function of that, you know, the, the Bank of Japan transition from macular disinflation to sticky inflation, and ultimately the economy's hanging in there and still being resilient and pushing that recession plate, pushing that recession out in consensus mind, you know, into, you know, maybe in the middle of next year, um, that in my opinion could create some more bond market volatility. You will see some more bear steepening in my opinion. I think 475 to 5% on the 10 year is a very reasonable estimate for this market cycle. Yeah. Could you walk us through? There's been a pretty pronounced move in longer dated secure. So the 10 year right now at the time of recording is just under 4.5%. If you mm -hmm. go back and look, I, I think it's about up almost 50 basis points just on the month of September alone. Over the course of the last three months, it's been about a hundred basis point move. What's been moving those longer term rates and what are the immediate implications for that? Yeah. Great question, Mike. So it's, um, it's mostly floor policy rates. So in this chart here, I'm showing 
Uh, yeah, so in this chart here, I'm just showing the uh, the dark blue line is the terminal Fed funds rate as derived by the overnight index, index swap market out to two years. The light blue line is the Fed funds rate. And the red line here is the uh, the floor policy rate as derived by the minimum value on the OIS curve out to two years. And then we take the spread between the terminal rate and the, and the floor rate. And as you can see, we're currently pricing in right around 152 basis points of rate cuts, you know, in terms of this two year forward forecast horizon, um, you know, for the money markets. That's still, I mean, not quite, but it's still a full couple of uh, corporate rate um, hikes above, or sorry, still a couple of rate cuts uh, below where the foot's currently priced into the ECB and a full rate cut below what's priced into the, um, into the uh, Bank of England curve. And I don't see, based on our analysis of the data, you know, you have much, um, much more deleterious growth dynamics in both of these economies, um, in our opinion. Uh, we definitely, in our opinion, should be seeing something that looks a lot more like, you know, neutral pricing. I don't see any real foundational basis in, in, in terms of what I'm trying to say is between to, to for the markets to delineate between you know U.S. Um, you know, forward rate curve and the European forward rate curve you know on a relative basis to their to their own economies. So you know I, one of these numbers is wrong. Effectively, is what I'm trying to say. Either the you know the Bank of England and the ECB need to price in more rate cuts and be more like the Fed, or the Fed needs to price out less rate cuts and be more like the ECB and Bank of England. In our opinion, I think uh, the latter is more likely in the context of that. Resilient U.S. economy, sticky inflation, Bank of Japan tightening—you um, know, kind of a trifecta that the bond market, in my opinion, is likely to experience in the coming months. And then, you know, in terms of just like pricing, you know, this is something we've been—in no opinion, I'm not again—I'm not a big fan of taking victory laps, but you know, we will take it when when it's due. We, I think we've been very appropriate to be to have warned investors about fixed income. You know, particularly, you know, I want to say in in the May time frame, you know, kind of right, right you know, in the aftermath of the regional banking crisis. Mm-hmm it started to become a little bit more clear that this wasn't the death knell for the U.S. economy. And so, you know, at that time, we were you know, pretty clear, like, hey, look, this economy is going to remain resilient, at least until the fall, perhaps into the, the, the spring of next year, in terms of that, that recession forecast window that we highlighted earlier. If that's the case, bonds are egregiously mispriced. And that's obviously proven to be correct, right? I don't want to say something like TLT is down about, you know, 12, 15% since that call. And the reason we were comfortable making the call then is because the pricing in the fixed income market was at the time and continues to be to perfection. And, and it's to perfection in the, in favor of a hard landing that's going to get bond bulls paid, which ultimately means like, how are you going to get paid if, if this is the starting point? So in this chart here, I'm, I'm showing a 10 year term premium as derived by the ACM model. I mean, there's no such, you know, there's no real term premium to, uh, to, 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 um, to observe out there. And for, for the listeners, for those who are unfamiliar uh, with the fixed income math, term premium is the, the excess return you get as an investor for locking in your, your capital. Uh, for an extended for you know for an extended period of time for you know on this particular duration for so for ten years relative to just rolling that same amount of capital over you know on a on a on a you know on a uh, for a three month T bill or something like that for a shorter maturity so it's effectively saying hey look the market is effectively saying there's an excess amount of demand for treasuries on the ten year relative supply so much so that term premium even today after this back backup that we've seen months is still negative yeah. it's still minus twenty eight uh, basis points. Historically, the 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 um, the mean term premium in the bond market is somewhere around a plus 152 basis points. And you know why do term premium widen? Why are term premium so tight currently? Well, when you, we we did a big um, empirical study on this um, back, back to last summer, term premium you know tend to be very correlated with inflation. And the reason they tend to be very correlated with inflation uh, is, is for obvious reasons, which which is well, not obvious reasons. You, we needed to do the research to, to get to this conclusion, but it is sort of obvious when you kind of arrive at the, the, the point, which is when inflation's high, you have higher volatility in both nominal and real economic growth. 
And all term premium really are just the sort of volatility associated with forecasting nominal and real economic growth, right? In the ultimate path, the policy rates. And so we're effectively arguing that if, okay, if we're in this higher inflation regime, which we are arguing, and we can talk about our structural views on inflation as well, we are in this higher inflation regime. It's very unlikely that we can keep term premium negative in the context of a Fed, you know, that's consistently shrinking its balance sheet in terms of its treasury exposure. And then one final thing on inflation, um, in terms of uh, the bond market, in terms of the steepening we may see, you still have inflation expectations, whether they be market-based or implied based on, you know, some of these wonky models that the Fed uses. They're still kind of coalescing around this two and a quarter level. Well, our math suggests that we should be coalescing around three and a quarter when you think about where inflation is likely to trend over the very long term. So that, in my opinion, uh, is, is another reason why you could easily see some uh, more bear steepening uh, in the treasury market, really, you know, across global sovereign debt markets globally. But I do believe the treasury market is especially vulnerable, uh, given kind of the, um, you know, given this expectation amongst institutional and, 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 and even retail investors uh, that a recession continues to be right around the corner. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. You know, in terms of the the sticky inflation, I I would love to to poke at that a little. I I listened. I went to a uh, investor summit this week here in New York, and I listened to someone from. He's a, I, I don't want to out him specifically, but he's you know one of the the chairman of one of the largest, most successful private equity funds in the world, and very accomplished. You know, sort of investor has been there, and he talked about his outlook for inflation, and the way he described it was. The you know we've moved essentially from st- inflation sort of stabilized around before the Fed really started to push it down around uh, you know six percent we're at three between three and three point five percent right now so the mental framework for people should be we're about halfway done with the work that needs to get done and similarly to a diet the first uh, ten pounds are a lot easier than that stubborn last five pounds so there's, there's still yeah, as we all know, right? So <laughs> there's work still left to be done on the inflation front. And I know you've been a proponent that it's going to be stickier. So obviously, there's a little bit of a divergence right now in between core and headline. Energy prices are driving headline back up. Core has been a little persistent. I mean, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on on why inflation is sticky. And maybe it's the lagging shelter indicator. Uh, why is inflation going to be much stickier? And then where do we ultimately end up shaking out inflation wise do we abandon the two percent target that the fed you know sort of did this on a, a long time ago or well, you know, it was the reserve reserve bank of new zealand ah there you go so yeah. and we all um, copied them even though they did this that's what everyone does yeah there are some i think there are two types of people in this world there are people who think that models inform everything and everything's very data driven or people that do this at the very top and I'm in that camp. But um, I, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be curious what you think, Darius, just about the, like, why is inflation going to be much stickier? Yeah, so to me, uh, you're sort of asking two questions. There's a cyclical outlook for inflation and then there's a structural outlook for inflation. So let's attack the cyclical outlook for inflation first because that has nearer term uh, market implications. So um, we're showing this chart here, uh, our hope plus I framework on uh, inflation. 
And what it's designed to do is help investors understand the progression of uh, various cycles or in and around a recession in, in the U.S. economy. And so what this is, uh, what these lines represent uh, is the median trailing 10-year delta adjusted Z-score of a basket of indicators that represents each of these cycles. Now, that's a total mouthful. This is finance <laughs> stuff. But all I'm effectively saying is what's the normalized level of the indicator adjusted for the directionality? So, for example, jobless claims, you need to invert them so that down is bad and up is good, right? Or sorry. So, yeah, so that up is bad and, and down is good, right? And so we have to delta adjust all the uh, the various indicators. And it's about 10 to 12 indicators in each of these baskets, you know, something in the inflation basket, like private sector wage growth, core PCE, headline CPI, things like that. So what we're trying to do is effectively see, okay, how do these indicate, how do they, how does these various cycles in the economy behave in and around recession? What lag, what leads, what lags? And what we find is that housing tends to break down around 18 to 16 months ahead of a recession. Uh, orders tends to break down around t- uh, eight to 10 months ahead of a recession. Production and profit, though that basket of indicators tends to break down on balance on a median basis around four to six uh, months ahead of a recession. Employment tends to break down right on time. You know, that's kind of the bullseye. And it makes sense, right? The NBR is using, you know, a lot of labor statistics to kind of date the business cycle. But ultimately what we find is that inflation is the most lagging indicator. It tends to break down, um, to a below trend pace, to a below trend level six to eight months after a recession starts. And so if this, if you, if you just burn this image into your head, you, we've mm-hmm. long thought, despite having this trend immaculate disinflation plus resilient economy equals transitory Goldilocks view since January, we've long thought that inflation would eventually settle out at a level that is inconsistent with the Fed's um, 2% uh, target, irrespective of the move that we're seeing in energy. So this is, um, this is still part of our base case scenario. And part of the reason why it's our base case scenario, and this is sort of, you know, kind of um, looking at another way of looking at that analysis, what I'm showing here in this table is a collection of um, indicators and cycles in the economy uh, that how they behave during and after, during, uh, before, during and after recession, uh, and kind of trying to understand like what actually, what is a recession, right? We use this where we throw it around, but what actually happens to things like GDP, non-farm payrolls, corporate profits, the market itself, inflation, the Fed funds, et cetera, uh, in a recession. So there's a lot of information in this table, but the most important um, as it relates to the cyclical outlook for inflation, the most important column in this table is this column here, which is the basis point change of core PC inflation in the year leading up to recession. And what we find is that, that, that on a median basis, it's plus five basis points, which effectively says core PC is usually flat to up leading into a recession. And in fact, there's only one negative value in this entire sample, and that was leading into uh, the 1981-82 recession. So th- there's a lot of time series history in the U.S. economy that says you generally don't get very positive inflation outcomes before a recession, which is another reason we believe that inflation will, even though it's been immaculately disinflating because of the, you know, some of the lagged effects of, you know, the pandemic or coming out of the time series, you know, things like auto uh, used car pricing and airfare pricing, hotel pricing, a lot of stuff that's just been wicked hot. You know, it's really just coming down back to normal. Uh, but we don't believe normal is the previous 2% world. And again, that's a structural discussion we'll talk, we'll have in a second. But, you know, so with these two charts in mind, Understanding that inflation is a lagging indicator of the business cycle, we'll go into what's actually happening on the ground, boots on the ground in the real statistics. So in the most recent inflation print, uh, except uh, I think it was the August print, uh, we saw the three-month annualized rate of change of headline CPI accelerate to 3.9%. And again, that's on a three-month annualized basis. So whenever you see these charts from 42 macro, the red line is year over year. The blue, line, the blue bars are um, the three-month annualized rates of change. The three-month annualized rates of change contain all the information that we're looking for as market participants. The year-over-year is, is, is fun to talk about. It's easy to model, but the reality is mm. stuff that actually matters to the bond market and, and really to global markets is, are, the, are the sequentials. And so we have to keep a good eye on what's actually developing there. And we're starting to see some interesting developments on, on the sequentials. 
energy inflation popped up to 25.4% through month annualized. And this is after a year plus of negatively compounding energy inflation. So that's a problem, right? We know that we, you have a headline inflation problem brewing uh, in the months ahead. But what's also uh, starting to be kind of an issue is um, a couple things. So core, core CBI continues to decelerate. Uh, we're now at um, 2.4% through month annualized. We, we have negative core goods inflation at minus 1.9%. Um, core or, or, or shelter inflation continues to decelerate. It's now at 4.4% through month annualized, well below the year-over-year rate of 7.2%. But what I'm starting to see is, is sort of stasis in places that we don't want to see stasis, man. So this is core uh, sh- uh, core services CPI. So this is um, core services less housing. So super core. That number has gone up two consecutive months. Now it's at two point two percent through month annualized, which is slightly below the the, the pre COVID trend, the trend we observed from twenty fifteen to twenty nineteen. But it's moving in the wrong direction. And not only is it moving in the wrong direction, we are starting to see stasis in trend mean CPI. And so if you look at the last four months of trend mean CPI, we basically trapped around kind of like somewhere between like 2.7 and 3.2%. We're at 2.9% now. So it's effectively telling me it's, we're the, mar- the, the inflation basket is having a really hard time like getting back to two. And you're starting to see that in the data. You wouldn't be able to tell this by looking at the year of year numbers because they're going to continue to decelerate in the months ahead. And folks who aren't paying attention to the right information are going to miss the call. But what's happening in, on the margins on the ground is that we're starting to see some some stasis in, 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 in where it really matters and where it really counts in terms of the Fed's reaction function on inflation. And one final thing I'll say, and just in terms of these data points, you know, you look at core PPI, uh, you know, X trade service, so super core PPI, so, you know, less food and energy and trade service, that number popped up to 3.3% uh, in, in August. And again, this has nothing to do with energy or, you know, eventually, you know, energy will filter through into these numbers. But, you know, again, this is, this is not good as it relates to the cyclical outlook for inflation in the context of everything I just said about this table and in the context of everything I just said about this chart. So in my opinion, I think in the next few months, at some point by, you know, again, I want to put, be too specific because it's impossible to model sequentials uh, with, with any specificity on timing. You could, you could be good on timing or you could be good on the actual number. And, and it's, you know, it's hard to, to, to do both um, in the modeling terms. Trust me, I've tried. I think at some point in the next few months, it'll be pretty clear that we're moving the wrong way on a trending basis in terms of these sequential inflation readings and not just because of energy. It'll be because, you know, the broader economy is experiencing this sort of second round of inflation, or maybe not even a second round. That's probably too much of a, a statement. It's just we are experiencing a higher level of inflation that we're not going to shed or get rid of until we go through a recession. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there, Darius. And there are, you know, longer, some of the other like even much longer term trends, right? Like people like to cite demographics, a little bit overdone, but I believe that's a thing. I mean, we're reshoring and reconstructing our supply chains in real time. It's, you know, there, there are longer term pressures, even in addition to what we discussed. And I, what I'd like to get your sort of translation to is, okay, so maybe a recession. So inflation is going to be stickier than we all probably expect or would like. That leads to some sort of, I think you referred to as the modal outcome, like base case, sort of a recession at some point, um, you know, within the next 12 months or 18 months, say. But what do asset prices do from here? Like this has been a very interesting year just in terms of the stock market, right? So obviously economy has been much more resilient than we thought. I don't think anyone saw, maybe you did at the beginning of this year, uh, stock prices performing just as well as they did. It looks like they might have peaked and are now on the downturn. I mean, how do stocks, bonds, commodities do from here? Like next 12 months, do you think? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't take too much credit. Like we authored the call. There's others that beat us to it. Um, Raul Paul had the call right back in October of last year. Milton Berg mm-hmm. had the call right back in October of last year. 
uh, I co-authored a call with Bob Elliott on, on our program in January. So it took me, mm-hmm. I had a terrible Q4 being bearish. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, it was probably the worst uh, three months of my career. But I learned a lot. We improved our models as a function of that. And it's really benefited our clients um, throughout this year. Uh, so in terms of like what, how we see asset markets evolving, you know, you have to go back to the, fun, the, the, the basis, right? Like what really drives asset markets? And this is something we do statistical analysis on on a daily basis at 42 Macro. Right now, what's driving the stock market high, or the stock market, let's just pick on the stock market. What's driving the stock market is cyclical growth expectations in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the log price change correlation. We run this big uh, multi-factor correlation matrix um, based on log price um, changes. And cyclical growth expectations are by far do- dominating the, um, the S&P. So if growth can hang in there and even, you know, continue modestly expect, you know, improving on an expectations basis in terms of investors having to keep pushing out their recession view, because there, there's a lot of folks who are very bearish on um, what's it, what's the uh, what's the new narrative? Government shutdown and the uh, the consumer having to pay back their student loan debt. There's all these bearish narratives out there for Q4, and if those things don't tank the economy, you know, for, on an expectations basis, you know, you're going to have a, a positive shock to growth. And so I, I do believe that there's probably still right tail risk to price in in the equity market uh, in the context of you know the history of equity markets uh, leading up to uh, leading up to recessions. I'll throw some statistics at you. Uh, historically speaking, when you go back and you look at the 12 post-war uh, business cycles uh, in the U.S. economy, on a median basis, the, the S&P 500's return in the year leading up to the recession, to the you know wherever it peaks right before the recession, or sometimes they peak right during the recession, it's plus 16%, with an interquartile range of plus 14 to plus 20%. Plus 16% is more than double the, the, the median, the average annual return of the S&P. So S&P basically goes asymptotic as shorts are getting you know their faces ripped off leading into a recession, because a lot of folks put the bear trade on too early. Um, thank God we did not. <laughs> um, and so that's obviously happening again this year, obviously. Um, you think about, um, you know, what, how asset markets are likely to behave in a recession. The median return on the S&P 500 during recession or, you know, kind of the, what we call the phase two credit cycle downturn, which is the, you know, the credit cycle. You know, this is what happens in a recession that the median return on the S&P is minus 24% with an interquartile range of minus 19 to minus 39%. And you can bet your bottom dollar that those observations are, are, are correlated to the, the starting valuation of the market. And this is a market that's, you know, not particularly overvalued, but it, it is overvalued. It's not very overvalued. It was very overvalued in 2021 leading up to 2022's crash, but it, it is still quite overvalued. If you look at uh, the S&P 500's um, next 12-month PE ratio, we're in the 71st percentile of, you know, all the historical data going back to, I want to say, the early 1990s in terms of how far we can get that data uh, to go back. So, you know, we're expecting somewhat of a blow-off top prior to a crash. Now, again, I, you can put a gun to anybody's head and they'll give you a, a specific time frame or a date, but... Let's just say we, you know, we can rally into through year end and that's probably it. But again, I don't want to be too specific about that. We, we you know, we have systems that are going to help us, you know, get out of, you know, land the plane safely in terms of the risk management we need to, um, to not blow up in that eventual crash, uh, which I do believe is probably going to take place sometime during the first half and, and or middle of, of 2024. Um, that's neither here nor there. Crypto to me is, is a little bit more interesting because crypto does not have this institutional performance chase dynamic. Right. Like this is this year and we've done a um, Cisco analysis of this. This year, 2023 has been the most uh, we've never seen Wall Street sort of lag the Wall Street median uh, sell side estimate for the S&P lag the actual S&P price for this long of a period of time. Like the Wall Street has never been more wrong, bearish and wrong on the stock market than they've ever than they've been in 2023. And this is data going all the way back to 1998 uh, that we have the statistics for. And so what we find is that, you know, if you use that as a representative sample for, you know, you're just your general money manager out there, a lot of them have been looking up at the market performance like this the whole year. And so in our opinion, we think there's a behavioral dynamic that we need to layer on in terms of our market expectations, particularly for the U.S. equity market. You know, when I say this, I'm really specifically talking about U.S. equities. 
I, you know, I could care less about what Brazilian equities are going to do. They're probably going to suck wind if, if, if anything I said, you know, or, you know, some other smaller cap, you know, um, index because it's, you know, it doesn't have these performance chase dynamics, but you got a whole institutional investor community out there that is severely lagging the benchmark return. And they're going to have to make a choice as we move forward in time. If, if growth doesn't tank soon enough and on par with their expectations, that they're going to have to capitulate this fall and chase Santa, you know, higher. But again, that might be it. That might be it for this bull market, in my opinion. You know, valuations will be very unsupportive at that point uh, as well. Again, transitioning to crypto. Crypto, the number one thing that's driving crypto right now in terms of our big correlation matrix uh, is the terminal Fed funds rate. Not the floor Fed funds rate, but the terminal Fed funds rate. So crypto is scared out of its mind for more policy tightening out of the Fed because every time the Fed tightens policy, it's usually in, as a function of, you know, the, the, the economy being more resilient. And ultimately, that's just pushing out what crypto really wants, which is the liquidity, right? Crypto wants QE, crypto wants rate cuts, crypto wants, you know, the world to wash with liquidity. What crypto loves is an economy in shambles where liquidity is being created and has nowhere to go in the real economy. So it flows into financial markets and ultimately into digital assets. That is the, that's the panacea for crypto. Every bull run we've seen in crypto sort of starts from that, uh, from that, um, from that point in, in the business cycle. We're, in our opinion, we're probably at least a year away from that. <laughs> you know, like we're probably a year away from that process in terms of where inflation might be at the beginning of the recession. So in our opinion, I think, you know, it could be, a, it could be a long struggle for crypto. It's not necessarily saying crypto is going to crash while the stock market rallies. In our opinion, that's unlikely to happen. Um, but what's more likely to happen is that crypto continues to languish and just be volatile like it always is in the year leading up to having. So I had a big talk with uh, Pomp on, on that regard um, earlier this year. Crypto is extremely volatile. Bitcoin in particular is extremely volatile in the year leading up to having. I think next year, by this time next year, we're having this conversation on September 21st of 2024. I'll probably be saying, no, we got to get ready to go. That's pivot. I mean, when the Fed pivots, the whole world will know, right? Like, I don't need to tell yeah. you. I won't have to get on that, but. You, if you need to have a game plan to risk manage your digital asset exposure between now and then, this is what we're trying to do and based on our analysis of the economy. So that's crypto. We talked about the bond market. Currency market is, is, is pretty interesting because you have divergences in the currency market that should continue in terms of, I don't really see a reason why the euro needs to rally sharply or the Chinese yuan needs to rally sharply or the British pound needs to rally sharply. The one reason I think I can get behind is we've seen growth expectations in those economies come down pretty sharply in the last few months. Uh, we track nominal and real GDP growth expectations on a time series basis uh, here at 42 Macro. And they're now getting to levels where I'm like, if these economies don't go into recession, they're going to have a trend of positive economic surprises. And if we have a trend of positive economic surprises in those economies, you're going to start to see the dollar struggle uh, in that scenario. That's a positive. That's a tailwind for global liquidity. It's a tailwind for those currencies and ultimately a tailwind for those uh, asset markets. So I'm not I don't know that we, I don't know enough to, to make that call yet. Check back with me in like two months or not two months, but like two weeks, maybe. I think we're kind of at the very early innings of getting that that information. Yeah. Darius, um, unfortunately, we've got to wind down here, but always learn uh, a ton talking to you. And what I really appreciate is there's like a good amount of just sort of subjective context, but a lot of hard analytics and rigor that goes into your thoughts. So I always appreciate that. And uh, as listeners know, Darius has been on the program many times. Uh, I can't recommend 42 Macro enough, but Darius, if folks want to follow you or subscribe to the service, what is the easiest way to do that? Yeah, easiest way to do that is um, check us out at 42macro.com. I'm on Twitter, DariusDale42, uh, all one word. Um, you know, we try to put out a lot of educational content uh, outside of our paywall. But generally speaking, if you want to know exactly what to do uh, with your asset markets, your portfolio, you know, we're very specific about our factor recommendations, our ETF recommendations as well. Uh, we run a systematic portfolio construction process for our clients. Um, definitely come check us out because I think a lot of folks could need and could use the help in terms of uh, how to asset allocate. Um, 2023 has obviously been 
one of those years where folks, I think yeah. they're being honest with themselves. You know, they could definitely step up their, their macro process. I agree with that. Uh, guys, I highly recommend that you go check it out. Darius, uh, always have fun when you come on the program. Appreciate you, man. And we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely, Mike. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.